Uh, like Matt said, if we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Cam Brown. Uh, I'm the new REF Campus Minister at UW. Um, if we have not met, please introduce yourself. I'd love to have the opportunity to get to know one another. Um, I'd love to talk with you a little bit more about RUF and what we're doing, um, about the local work, and especially about the student care network that Matt mentioned earlier. I'll give a brief plug for that. One of the reasons why I stand here in this job um, and as a Christian today is both because of the work of RUF where I went to school and also because of a 55-year-old single man who invested in me and mentored me through college. And so uh, seemingly insignificant acts like inviting a 21-year-old out to lunch and getting to know them have a significant impact. Um, and so I'd love to talk with you about how to be involved in that and what that could look like. Um, I also, just before we, we dig in, want to say thank you. Um, Ray and I are here uh, and excited to be here and thankful to be here. And we are here because of the byproduct of a lot of prayer and a lot of work that preceded us in the work of Danny um, and prayer of this church as they, uh, as the Presbytery in this church looked to the transition of hiring a new person. So we're thankful for that. Um, and we're just really excited to be here and be a part of this community. Uh, we're here not only to serve students, but to be a part of this church. And so we're excited to do that. Um, if you'll turn with me in your bulletins, uh, we're going to be looking today in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Uh, if you are new to the scriptures, um, the book of the Bible that precedes this is the book of Exodus. And what's happening is that God's people who were in bondage have now been freed. They've been taken out of the land of Egypt, and they've been promised a land. And yet, for 21 chapters, as we approach this text, they've been wandering in the desert, looking for that promise to be fulfilled. And so let's turn there. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Please pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The word of the Lord. So imagine with me for a second a classic experience, whether it's you with your kids or it's you as a kid. For me, it's, it's me as a kid. I was uh, not a good road trip companion for my parents. You're on the road, you've been traveling for hours, you're, let's say, in the flat land, the flat state of Kansas. You're driving, you're bored, and the nine-year-old child, let's call him Jimmy, uh, is restless. He's been in the car for a long time, and he for the sixth time in the last hour, ask the classic question, are we there yet? The parents exchange a look at each other, um, trying to be patient and caring for this kid who clearly is just tired and restless 
and weary. And they say, Jimmy, we're about two hours out. We're going to stop at McDonald's in 30 minutes. We're getting really close. Jimmy is restless. He says, I cannot believe we're not there yet. You routed it the wrong way. The dad uh, turns to Jimmy and proudly says, well, I, I mapped it on ways, and we're actually saving 10 minutes by taking this interstate versus this other interstate. Jimmy now isn't going to have that. He says, I hate McDonald's. I never want to eat another Big Mac ever again. I hate this food. He grabs the phone, he throws it across the car, and he says, I know a better way. The parents exchange a look at one another. They patiently pull over. They turn to the back and they say, Jimmy, do you remember that time where we were on a canoe trip and the storm was just coming in? We said we needed to pull over and sit in the cave for a couple hours because we weren't going to make a nap if we kept rowing. We were wet, we were tired, and we were weary. We had to row the whole way home. But we made it back, and we promise we'll make it home. We need you to trust us. Jimmy, having calmed down a little bit, turns to his dad and he says, I think you're right. His dad says, that's okay, I understand you're restless, but I'm going to need to take your Game Boy away for a couple hours until we make it. This is a classic Family Matters uh, sort of corny ex uh, example, but you or your kids uh, you may have experienced that feeling of impatience on a long road trip. And of course this is a, a funny story, but I think we can all identify with that feeling of just not being where we want to be. And the ways that that can turn us against one another, and even against God. And we experience this too in our relationship with Him. Why doesn't He provide for us in the timing and with the desires that we want. This kind of question can go deep when what we're missing out on is in a Big Mac or a Gordita Crunch from Taco Bell, but when we're talking about the real fears and traumas of life. And yet something nags at me. What if God loves, provides, and cares for us deeply, but our impatience often prevents us from seeing and relating to God? Here's what I mean. In the previous story, Jimmy's impatience and weariness makes him question his parents' trustworthiness. The mapping isn't good enough. The food isn't good enough. His relationship with his parents needed confrontation, and it might have even needed a form of discipline. And in the text today, Israel has had a long journey. They're tired, and they're weary. If you've never read the book of Numbers before, you don't need to turn far. You can turn a few chapters back, and you see that they have rebelled against the leadership that God has given them twice. They've said to Moses, we think you're leading us the wrong way, and we want to actually have a mutiny. It's happened a couple times. In chapter 14, they sinned against God in the first generation. God says, we'll no longer inherit the promised land. And in all of this, God has continually shown them steadfast love and forgiveness, but not always in the timing that they wanted. And directly following this text, they even had a great victory. They were in the land of Arad, which you see previously before this, and they win a battle that, uh, by all tac tactical analysis, they should not have won. They've had proof of God's presence. But nonetheless, they are still wandering. They are tired. They are hungry. And they are impatient. And so the question I want us to consider today is, why does impatience make a mess of our relationship with God? So let's turn to verses 4 through 5. We see that this journey is hard. It's been 21 chapters of wandering. In verse 4 at the very beginning, we see that they wandered around the land of Edom. Well, why did they do that? 
They did that because there's actually a threat of war from the king there. This isn't a safe journey, it feels. They've become impatient. And it's, it's important to note here, the impatience here is more than just a struggle. It's not sinful for Israel to be honest about how hard their life has been. God invites us to cry out to him in our weariness. Rather, this impatience is a form of unbelief. And it reveals itself in contempt for God, his provision, and his leaders. And so first, this contemptuous impatience makes Israel forget where they have been. There's two key things that you need to know in the history of these people. The exodus and God's provision of manna. Remember, in the book before, when I started, before I uh, read the verse, uh, these people have been freed from bondage. That is a significant event in the life of Israel. It's one that time and time and time again in the Old Testament, God will reveal himself as the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Also, God in this desert wasteland has continued to provide food literally from the heavens that we call manna. But sometimes our impatience, just like the Israelites, can blind us to see God's work and provision in the past, can't it? Second, their impatience causes them to forget what is a blessing now. Verse 5, Israel calls this food worthless and that they loathe it. Gordon Wynnum, a commentator, says, The term worthless is found only here in the Old Testament. It's a disparaging comment on the bread of heaven. The very source of nourishment that has kept Israel alive and that God has continued to graciously provide is being mocked as worthless. And finally, their unbelief causes them to attribute the worst motives to God. They spoke against God and Moses. And what's significant here is not that they spoke against Moses. That's happened multiple times in Numbers. This is the first recorded time where they spoke against God. They don't trust him. And we can identify with that, can't we, in times? In our struggle to wait upon the Lord and trust him, we too can attribute the worst motives to God. We can struggle to believe that he is a God of love, mercy, justice, and we can even believe the lie that he does not fulfill his promises. So why does our impatience make a mess of our relationship with God? What we're seeing in this first scene is that impatience makes us forget. It makes us forget God's work in the past, his blessings now, and that God is for us. I remember uh, when I was in high school, I was that senior who was ready to move on. I'd had my time, and I was ready to go to college and, and move away. Uh, and we had this, this slideshow in our school where um, you know, they would put up photos of the senior class and their time together and whatever else. And it had like a musical background. So keep in mind the, the musical genius of Nickelback's photograph, uh, Matchbox 20's How Far We've Come, or the, uh, the cult classic Graduation Friends Forever by Vitamin C. Um, but in the midst of this experience, I was ready to move on. It didn't change anything. But I remember this overcoming wave of um, sort of renewed thankfulness of like, I'm ready to go, um, but I've had some formative experiences here, and um, there's some friends I've made that have been impactful. It was interesting how easily I had forgotten. And in this scene in the book of Numbers, this impatience leads to more than mere nostalgia. It leads to forgetting that God has been with Israel. And often our impatience leads to us forgetting that God has been with us. 
In, this, in these verses, Israel has forgotten that God has provided for them in this journey the whole time, and that he is the God who brought them out of Egypt to be a blessing. Their impatience and unbelief has made them forget that God does not drop his people. And so what might this mean for us? The application of this text becomes more real when what we consider is more than just a road trip or high school graduation, but something as big as the hunger and the wandering of the Israelites. What do we do when we struggle to see God in our present circumstances? In our recent diagnosis, in our struggles in our marriage, in our struggles with our work, fill in the blank. In these circumstances, however, the love of God and the fulfillment of his promises are not dependent on our present circumstances, but in the fixed work of God. For Israel, this is seen in Yahweh revealing himself as the God who led his people out of Egypt. This display of God's love and power was evidence of God's love for Israel. And patience and contempt led Israel in this text to forget the very display of God's love when they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? to die in the wilderness. And due to our impatience, we too often forget that the love of God is not seen in our present circumstances, but in the fixed work of God. And this makes a mess of our relationship with God because, let's be honest, we forget that he loves us. So why does impatience make a mess of our relationship with God? Because impatience makes us forget where we've been. But you might be asking the question, what's so bad about forgetting where we've been? Well, let's look back at our text. Verse 6, as I previously said, Israel's impatience caused them to forget where they had been and attribute the worst motives to God. And this greatly damaged their relationship because this impatience was content in a form of unbelief. The consequences of the damage, however, was more than just forgetting where they had been. Israel had committed a great sin equivalent to what we might think of today as treason. They had said, hey God, I don't like your leadership, and I think we can do better. And what happens next changes everything. Does God say, you're right, forget that thing I said in Numbers 14, and go ahead and walk into the promised land? Does he say, you're no longer my people? Rather than letting Israel's defiance go unpunished, or giving up on his people, God confronts his people in love. But this is hard to see, isn't it? Because in this passage, <laughs> he sends serpents. That doesn't feel like love, does it? One of the reasons that sin makes a mess of our relationship with God is because it has consequences, and it requires that God confronts us. And there's great mystery in this. We're not today going to solve why God chose that, or um, uh, we don't always know in our lives why God's purposes happen. But what I do want us to consider is that God's authority is not earthly authority. We all want justice. We want to see a God who punishes evil. The issue is that we often have seen discipline and punishment in the hands of humans who have done so unjustly. I'll add the hands of institutions that have done so unjustly to that. What we see here, however, is a God who confronts his people when they have done a great wrong because he is a God of love. But he also displays his love and his discipline, because he does not abandon Israel, nor do all of them die. Further, all of this is done actually in his purposes to bring his people back to him. 
So why does impatience make a mess of our relationship with God? Second, because it requires God to confront us. We saw this in the story I told earlier at the beginning. The parents pulling over the car and confronting Jimmy was an act of love. The sin of Israel here and the discipline of God are much bigger stakes. Those are not one-for-one scenarios. But the heart of discipline with God remains similar. God confronts us and disciplines his people's impatience because he loves us. And so what does this mean that God both provides for us and disciplines for us for our good? Well, God is calling us to a life committed to the opposite of impatience. As one pastor put it, the opposite of impatience is not a glib, superficial denial of frustration. The opposite of impatience is a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness either to wait for God where you are in the place of obedience or to persevere at the pace he allows you to on the road to obedience, to wait in his place or go at his pace. Impatience messes with our relationship with God because it requires God to confront us. And when God confronts us, how might he be calling us to a restored relationship and willingness to either wait or persevere at his pace? But you might be asking, even if God's discipline is good, how does this mess get fixed? Well, we see this in verse 7. Let's look back. What we see in verse 7 is that the people's impatience and contempt has made a mess of their relationship with God and with Moses. And what happens next changes everything. Can they be made right with God? Can they be made right with Moses? Israel recognizes the wrong, and they do the hard work of repentance. Impatience makes a mess of our relationship with God because it requires God to confront us, but it also requires us to approach both God and others in repentance. I think it's important to say that they came to Moses. See, I think we often fall into the trap of thinking that asking for forgiveness from God means that we don't need to ask forgiveness from those whom we have wronged. That's not what we see here. But they also ask Moses to pray to the Lord. In verse 7, we see that Israel's messy relationship with God, due to their impatience, requires prayer. And so why does impatience make a mess of our relationship with God? Because it requires repentance. Let me share with you a story I found about a Hungarian man in the 19th century named Ignaz Simmelweis. In 1818, Ignaz Philip Simmelweis was born into a world of dying women. A doctor's routine would start by examining autopsies in the morning and move to delivering babies without them ever washing their hands. He argued for years about the dangers of infection and the need to wash hands, but was ignored. He spent much of his life lecturing and debating with his colleagues, and once he argued, Purpural fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proved everything that I have said. But while we talk, 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 gentlemen, women are dying. I am not asking anything world-shaking. I am only asking you to wash your hands. But virtually no one believed him. And like this story, our own hands are often infected by impatience that damages, that damages our relationship with God and can even cause us to hurt others and react. And like these doctors need to wash their hands, we need to wash our hearts. The way that Israel was made clean from really big sin in the Old Testament was in forgiveness through a sacrifice and a mediator. And here they ask for forgiveness, and Moses mediates in prayer for them. And so what does this mean that God actually forgives a repentant heart? It means that God is actually trustworthy and kind. It means that our relationship can be restored 
It means for us today that the church has to be a place where people can come and not hide. It means for us that the church has to be a place that's accountable. Our culture is dying for accountability. One of my favorite shows, uh, really of all time, is Ted Lasso. If you know what this is, it's an Apple TV series about a, a, a soccer coach. But there's these two characters in it. There's this, this uh, woman who's the owner of this soccer team named Rebecca, and this younger woman named Keely who's dating this uh, not-so-good guy who's an athlete. And Rebecca's also uh, was recently married to a jerk, let's put it that way. Um, they're having a conversation about Keely's relationship. Keely has shared with Rebecca that she is with Jamie because he's attractive and he's fit and he's young and he's rich. And Rebecca says this, but is he accountable? Keely says, what do you mean? She says, everyone makes mistakes, but I was married to a man for 12 years who never once took responsibility for any single one of them. We want accountability. We serve a God who calls us as a people to repentance, not in a glib or superficial way or as a token, but because he's calling us to a beautiful community. And he offers us his grace because we know that when we humbly come before him, he is quick to forgive. You might be saying, it's great that God forgives me, but this is still feels a lot on me. Is this just a do, do, do sermon? Well, let's turn to verses 8 through 9 as we close. What does God actually do when his people repent? Will he just say, too late? Well, he does this kind of strange thing. He says to Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. But he says that everyone who looks to it will live. This is the God of the Exodus, who reveals himself as showing his steadfast love for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And in the middle of this huge punishment is a huge abundance of grace. God in his infinite grace makes a source of healing in the very shape of Israel's source of death. And it's important to note, however, that the passage never says that everyone who looked to it, or everyone looked at it, and was healed. Some people did not look to the serpent. And so the people's sin put them in jeopardy. But they didn't stay in jeopardy. So why does the patience make a mess of our relationship with God? Contempt for God puts us in jeopardy. But the people are not left in jeopardy if they look to the bronze serpent. The source of their strength God's, is God's provision. They don't have the strength to endure and follow God faithfully with patience because they sorted everything out or because they had everything together, but because they looked to what God had provided. If you grew up in the church or even are, you know, if you watch college football, you've probably seen John 3.16 somewhere. Um, we're very familiar with that verse. Um, but are you familiar with the two verses that come before it? John 14 through 15 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Friends, our great provision is Jesus. He displayed his love for us on the cross so that we might have life. And he is who we are called to look to. This story, it's important to note, has a component of physical healing. 
God certainly is gracious to provide this for us sometimes. However, in our struggle to fight the temptation of unbelief and impatience, we will find that he does not always offer us or our loved ones physical healing. We live in the jeopardy of physical death. Nonetheless, in this passage, everyone in this passage who was physically healed physically died. Healing is in heaven. It's not to be tried about that. But what he does guarantee those who repent and look to him is eternal life and restored relationship with God. And he promises that he's making all things new. After a hard-fought battle with the temptation of unbelief and a, a pretty severe physical illness, a faithful English pastor in the 1800s named Charles Simeon said this in his last days. Infinite wisdom has arranged the whole with infinite love. An infinite power enables me to rest upon that love. I am in a dear Father's hands. All is secure. When I look to him, I see nothing but faithfulness and immutability and truth. And I have the sweetest peace. I cannot have more peace. If you read Simeon, you know that this peace does not mean that he doesn't have pretty extreme doubt or frustration. But it does mean that he knows that the fixed promises of God's love are in his son. Israel was also called to look to God's display of love. It is this display of love that enables faithfulness. And we too can look to Jesus' great display of love. And so what does this mean for us? Many of you might be coming here today in different places. Some of us are weary. Some of us are angry. Some of us might just want to feel something again. And it's tempting to become impatient and to contempt God. Why, after all, should we trust him? But as God gave the Israelites the bronze serpent to look to, God has given you Jesus to look to and be reminded of his internal purposes of love. It doesn't make it easy. But as one pastor put it, the display of God's love is not our present circumstance. The display of God's love for us is Christ's death. This does not mean that God is not gracious to give us earthly blessings often. He can and does physically heal, financially provide, and relationally bless. But these things are not the primary fundamental display of God's love. Christ's death is the display of God's love. And so your most recent disappointment is not the display of God's love. Christ's death is God's display of his love. Your struggle with loneliness is not God's display of his love for you. Christ's death is God's display of his love. Your struggle with singleness if you want to be married is not Christ or God's display of God's love for you. Christ's death is God's display of his love. Your struggles in your own marriage is not God's display of God's love for you. Christ's death is God's display of his love. Your loss of work or disappointment with your work is not God's display of his love for you. Christ's death is God's display of his love. Your recent diagnosis or the diagnosis of a loved one is not God's display of his love for you. Christ's death is God's display of his love. And because God's display of his love is Christ's death, it is something that can never be taken away. It is finished. It is fixed in time and enduring forever. We can always look to it and have assurance and be given strength to endure the long-fought battle. And this doesn't make the battle easy. 
or deny the sense of frustration we feel, but Christ's death is an unbelievable gift. And so let's look to this display of God's love and our impatience. So why does impatience make a mess of our relationship with God? It makes us forget where we've been. It requires God to confront us. It requires repentance. And it even puts us in jeopardy. But as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And thank God that God shows us his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we um, reflect on this word which is given to us in love, and as we prepare to approach your table, would you remind us and encourage us of your love, even when it feels far, feels distant, or even at times feels unreal? God, would you remind us that you are a God who does not drop his people? You are a God who deeply loves us and actually came and took on flesh so that we might have life. Amen.